tactics. We are going to finish. We're going to finish the book, and then we can move on. It's bittersweet for me because I like getting into a book, getting in context, and, uh, but when I finish, that means I got to start again. And so, I, you know, there's a lot of work on the front end. But 1 Timothy chapter 6, and we'll begin in verse 11 this morning. Now, I've entitled the message, Pursue the Prize. So let's read, um, well, let's remember. Uh, Jesse, if you'll hit the next slide for me. Um, let's remember where we were last week. Last week, we ended with uh, Paul saying to Timothy, You, O man of God, flee these things and pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, patience, and gentleness. Now, remember the, the context, because he's writing to a young man who is a pastor at a church in Ephesus. And he's told him over and over, don't give ear to people that are, are talking about things that don't matter. Uh, he said in chapter 1, verse 4, don't give heed to fables and endless genealogies, things that cause disputes rather than godly edification, which is in faith. Don't give ear to people that want to talk to you about all kinds of stuff that really doesn't pertain to the Christian life. He says they're going to be talking about things, they're going to have rules and regulations built into their, quote, Christianity that have nothing to do with things that will strengthen us in our faith in Jesus. And so he said, don't pay attention to it. Don't, don't waste your time on it. Timothy's a young pastor. He's in a, a large city. He only has a set amount of time, and he's got problems within the church. Imagine that, a church with problems. And so he says, instead of dedicating all of your time to the things that really don't matter, dedicate your time to doctrine and sound teaching, and teach things that will strengthen people's faith in Jesus so that they can go out to their jobs, and they can go live in their lives, and they can be godly examples to the community around them. Don't get tied up in all of the stuff, the negativity, the arguments about things that really aren't even in Scripture. Don't worry about them. Don't waste your time on them. So he says there in chapter uh, 6, verse 11, he says, but you, O man of God, he calls him man of God. It seems to me that Timothy probably needs some encouragement. And so Paul's reminding him of his identity. You are a man of God. And that changes things, right? If you know who you are of, then it changes the way that you live your life. For instance, uh, Jesse and I have a friend, Cody Harbison. Some of you know him. And he made a comment one time in a men's Bible study. He said, you know what? If I'm driving my truck around town, I will do burnouts, and I will make noise, and I will make my exhaust loud. He said, but if I'm driving my dad's truck with his magnet on the side, I drive totally different. Now, as he's grown in his walk with the Lord, he's realized that he's riding Jesus' brand, you know. But in the meantime, what he said at the time, and I thought it was pretty wise, especially for a young guy in the faith, he said, when I got that magnet on the side, I represent my dad. I represent his business. And if I have a positive impact, I represent him. If I have a negative impact and I make people despise me, they'll despise him because I got my, his magnet on my truck. And so we, in the same way, uh, we, we ride his brand or we, have, we represent him here on earth. And so he says, uh, you, O man of God. Now, this would be encouraging to Timothy if he spent any time in the Old Testament because think about the people in the Old Testament that are referred to as man of God. Moses, 
was called man of God by God himself. Uh, Elijah, who did miracles and was used mightily by the Lord. Elisha, his predecessor, also. So I think it's interesting that he's saying, he's calling him man of God. And, and I think it's also interesting because of, in James chapter 5, verse 17, James write, writes there in verse 17, this. I skipped over a book. That's not the right. All right, James chapter 5, verse 17. He says this, Elijah was a man with a nature like ours. Now he goes on to say more, but I think we need to stop there and kind of think about that. Elijah was a man just like us. He, was, he had a nature like us. We, I think sometimes we picture Old Testament people of faith, and even the Apostle Paul I put up there for you on the screen, uh, in a stained glass window, like this guy that wasn't tempted by things. Like, look how much God used him. He must have been, like, awesome. You know, he must have been totally unlike us, not even tempted by things. But, and and it, when we get that picture, we kind of get the wrong view. Uh, Elijah, who God used mightily against the prophets of Baal on Mount Carmel to, to call down fire onto an altar and completely consume not only the offering, but everything around it and the water in the trench around it, God used him in order to essentially uh, pour out his love and show that he is the only true God. And if we are the same way, we can be used by God in such miraculous ways as that, if we will trust him, if we will wholeheartedly give our will over to God's plans instead of ours. He, he had a nature like ours, and yet he gave up his life to let God live and serve through him. And so in the same way, Paul's talking to Timothy, and he says, you, O man of God, you are of the line of the men of God that were used by God. So recognize that. And he says, in recognizing that, flee these things. Now, he's just got done talking about uh, fleeing greed or the love of money. We talked about the fact that money is not evil, but the love of money, the desire to gain wealth, just for the sake of finding your trust in it, is evil. It actually says that it's the root of all kinds of evil. Greed causes men to, to uh, deny their families. Greed causes people to, to essentially never be around or, or even to uh, steal. You know, greed can cause us to do all kinds of things if we long to grasp hold of something that's not for us. So he says, flee these things, flee these evil desires. He says in verse 10 there, in the same chapter, the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil, which many of you have heard quoted or misquoted, saying money is evil. But he says money is the root of all kinds of evil. And he look at this, for which some have strayed from the faith. The love of money causes people to leave Jesus completely. Now, they don't go out, they don't set out and say, you know what? I don't really love Jesus anymore. I'm going to I'm going to stop considering him. I'm going to stop serving him or I'm going to not go to church anymore on Sundays. I really could make more money on that day. What happens is they have a desire to obtain wealth or the next level up in their career or an extra vacation or or even a vacation and because of that they pursue that wealth and in doing so they slowly, you've heard the song by Casting Crowns it's a slow fade. They 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 give up their first love for something that's more important to them, really. 
They worship money instead of God. And Jesus himself said, you can't serve God and mammon. You can't serve God and money and wealth. So he says there, he says, flee these things and instead pursue righteousness. As Christians, we should be known more for what we are for, what we do, than what we don't do. I think a lot of the time when I was growing up, I knew more about what Christians were against than I knew what they were for. And the things that they were against, they no doubt should have been against. Don't get me wrong. But we are to be known for what we are for and who we are for. We are to be Christ-like, not unlike the world. You know, my goal for the longest time was to not be like somebody that was in my life. Well, that's not a goal. That's actually a, a trace to nowhere. If I'm not like this one person, I'm, I'm planning to be like anyone else other than that. But if I'm to be like Christ, if I pursue him and want to be godly, like God, like Jesus, then the reality is I will have a goal that is actually obtainable. Do you know that it's obtainable to be Christ-like? Christian means little Christ. Jesus said, I and the Father are one. And he said, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. He called all who would follow him to deny themselves, take up their cross and follow him, to imitate him, to be with him, to do life like him, because he is the way, the truth, and the life. So if he is the way that ultimately Adam should have lived in the first place, the ideal man, then we ought to imitate him and follow him and and do all we can to, to be more like him so that he is glorified. So he says, pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, patience, and gentleness. And we talked about that last night or last week. Um, I said that pursue really means to chase after. He said, think about the contrast. Don't chase after money. Don't chase after wealth. Don't chase after a position. Instead, chase after these things. Righteousness. And I thought this was interesting because in Matthew chapter 6, verse 33, he says, don't worry about what you'll obtain. He says, instead, Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And all these other things, these per- periphery things, these things that don't, they will happen as you pursue him. He says, uh, so he says, uh, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. So seeking his righteousness that we may obtain it. We may obtain the righteousness of God by faith in the Son of God. And that righteousness is right standing with him that leads to right standing with people that we live with, people that are in our community, righteousness, godliness, means godlikeness, faith. The word there is actually the root word for faithfulness, to become a faithful man or a faithful woman, you know, uh, means that you become more like God, to learn to love, pursue love. And I said this last week that that if you will pursue to love like Christ loves us, your whole life's going to be consumed in that task. Because agape love is the word that's used there, and it's love that sacrifices on the behalf of others. Greater love has no man that he would lay down his life for his friends. And then he says patience, and that word for patience is the ability to endure when things are hard. I'm not patient. Uh, if my wife were here, she'd be like, mm-hmm. You know, but I'm not, not naturally. God has to work that out in me. And Romans 5 tells the, you know, if you want to read the beginning of Romans 5, you can learn how to become patient. Let patience have its perfect work. And then gentleness. 
And the word for that is meekness. Gentleness is meekness. Meekness is complete power to do anything I want, yet under the control of the Holy Spirit, it's like a bridled horse that is so powerful, can drag the plow, but if it's not bridled, if, it doesn't sense, if it's not sensitive to the bit, it's just going to cause a mess all over your yard. But if it's under control, then when it drags the plow, it's going to go exactly where it needs to go and break up the hard ground, and then you can plant something and it can produce fruit. So, verse 12, he says, Fight the good fight of faith. Lay hold on eternal life to which you were also called and have confessed the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. So he's told him two things. Flee these things. Pursue, and we listed the things out. And then he says, fight. Now, how many people think it's good advice to tell a young pastor he needs to fight, right? I thought chapter three already said that he's not to be a hitter. You know, so fighting must not mean what we kind of think about when we hear the word fight. He says, fight the good fight. And the word there for fight actually means to agonize. Now, how, how many of you in here, raise your hand, like agony? You want to agony? Not me either. I hate agony. I, when I think of agony, I think of somebody that just got their toe stepped on by, you know, a, you know, a hammer or something, you know, like a Mel Gibson movie. You know, where you watch the veins pop out of his neck, and you're like, that's agony right there. I know he's acting, but he looks like he's actually in pain. You know, he's, he's good at that. Agony means to fight for what matters. So literally what he's saying there in that verse is agonize the good agony. So there is good agony, right? Not in my book. I don't, you know. But what he's saying is there are things to fight for. He says, don't quibble and quabble and argue about, that's probably made up words, about things that don't matter. But he says, do fight about the things that do matter. I think sometimes, maybe you're different than I am. I, I, don't, ha- I don't go looking for controversy. I, I don't like drama. I don't even like having a, a disagreement. I don't like it. Most of the time that I get in arguments, it's because there is no other choice. You know, I don't like bringing up things that stir up people's anger, even on the things that matter. I'm timid, like Timothy. I don't go looking for something to argue with people about. Now, a lot of people would disagree. They'd say that I'm very argumentative. But, but what I would say is that um, when it comes to fighting for things, there are some things that we should speak up about. There's a time to keep silent, no doubt, and there's a time to speak. Uh, many times we speak when we really ought to close the pie hole, and we stay silent when we should open it. God has left us to be a witness and to confess the things that people need to know. Without us speaking them, they will never hear them. And yet many times we use our mouths to go on and on and on about things that really don't matter. And I won't give you an example because you guys can all think of one that you're convicted about. I mean, maybe you can't, but I can. I can think of all kinds of things that I need to close my mouth about and all kinds of things that I should speak up about. You know, when somebody says something about God that's absolutely not true because of somebody else that they talk to, they need corrected. Not like to argue about it, but just to bring up what Scripture says. Not to wham them with the Bible, but to just say, hey, graciously, I know that you said that, for example, what we were saying earlier, that, the, that money is evil. But uh, actually here in Timothy, it says that the love of money is evil. Money is just 
a tool that we can use. We can be stewards over. God gives it to us, actually. And so um, he says, fight the good fight of faith. He says, lay hold on eternal life to which you were also called and have confessed the good confessions in the presence of many witnesses. So he says, agonize the good agony. Now, Paul is using this illustration because he's a big fan of sports. So if you're a sports guy and you want to make a biblical reference for why sports are not really that big a deal, and you're trying to convince your wife, like, tell them about Paul. Paul was a sports guy. Now, at the same time, Paul went on missionary journey, so I don't know that he got to go see the games very often. But what it says here is he, he's making an analogy. He says to agonize, which is the word that means to stretch oneself out. And I put there for you a picture of men competing in a race after having prepared and run their little hearts out. And at the very end, they don't just kind of coast across the finish line like, okay, I ran hard for the first 400 meters and I'm just going to kind of stride to the end. They are literally giving everything because if they don't, what happens? If any of you have run races or played sports, you know the agony is either during the match or during the race, or if you don't give your all, the agony is for the next week before you get to run again because you are lamenting the fact that you left some energy in your body and you didn't win, right? And so I was listening to my pastor share this passage, and what he said was, I think there's going to be a lot of Christians who were not willing to agonize for the Lord as much as they were for their worldly pursuits. And they will get to heaven. But I truly believe that many of us will get to heaven, be in the presence of the Lord, and go, ah, just a moment of agony going, I could have fought harder, and I didn't. And now I regret it. Now, I think that's partially one of the reasons why we're going to have some tears to be wiped away. Because I think we're going to see heaven for all that it is and god for all that he is because heaven's just basically going to be his presence and it's going to be so enjoyable that we're going to go i don't deserve this you know I, now no doubt we don't deserve it anyway uh, but we'll have want, wished we fought harder for the thing that mattered the most in romans chapter 8 we were reading this yesterday at my house and uh I was thinking on this because of the kids being sick. And, you know, I'm not saying that we're suffering or being persecuted. I'm just saying that suffering, suffering, right? And when you're in the middle of it, it seems like it's the end of the world and it's overwhelming. And I thought about the Apostle Paul's words. We had a little devotional and I was reading and what it says there in Romans chapter 8, verse 18, Paul writing says, I consider that the suffering of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. The suffering that we experience now, we won't even think about it when we're in glory. It won't even be a thought on our mind. We won't go, man, I don't know if this was worth it. You know, we're going to go, oh, that was nothing. Look how great this is. You know, it, it'll be so worth it that we won't even think about it anymore. And Paul wrote this. Remember, he was stoned to death at Iconium. He was shipwrecked twice stuck in the sea on a board, essentially floating. He was bit by a snake that should have killed him. You know, he, he was put under trials. He was whipped several times, 39 lashes minus, 40 lashes minus one. Like, he knew what suffering was. I don't. But what he said is, the sufferings that we experience in this life, 
They seem like the worst thing that can happen. But they're, when we get on the other side, it's going to seem like, what was I even complaining about? And he tries to, he's just trying to give us a little insight to that so that when life gets hard, when we're tempted to just kind of back it off a little bit, he's trying to tell Timothy, like, don't back off. It's going to be worth it. He says, lay hold on eternal life. Reach out. Do all that you can to stretch for it. Now, think about this in sports. Let's stick with the sports analogy. I was looking for pictures this morning of someone stretching out. I was expecting the picture you see. But you know the other picture I saw? It was a picture of a young gymnast. And this little girl, you know, we're talking, you know, not Lucy size, but a little bit larger. And, you know, she was getting ready for her meet. And, of course, they have to be stretched out. Their muscles do all kinds of stuff. And they bend things. And, you know, I watch those Olympic girls. And I'm just like, who let them do that the first time? You know, like, (laughs) I don't know about this. You know, they must have had a net, I hope. But anyway, I'm like, how do they get so limber? Well, I see this picture. And this is this 50-year-old dude sitting on top of this little girl who is bent over like the sit-reach position, except her face is on the ground. He's just sitting on her, stretched out. Now, she's preparing. If we agonize, if we fight for what matters, if we are willing to do the preparation for the big game, especially in faith, guess what that does? When the runner goes out and runs 50 miles, to prepare for his whatever crazy, you know, what's it called? The septipul... Wow, gosh. The thing where they do multiple sports. I can't think of the word right now. Triathlon. And they got biathlon, triathlon. They probably got some other crazy thing. But these guys spend... They'll run for 50 miles, not because the competition requires that, but so that when they run just 10 and then have to swim two miles, it's really nothing. You know, they, they push their bodies to the utter limit. Some of these guys, they train to go run, and they don't train to run where they're going to run. They go run in the mountains where the air's thinner. They dehydrate themselves on purpose in order to go out and get ready for the actual race so that when they run their actual race, they're fine. Football players do the same thing. Their coaches will make them run the end of the field over and over and over because they're going to have to do that in the game? No. So that when they dry heave in practice, because they're so beat up, when they're in the fourth quarter and they got to score one more down in order to win the game, they're looking at the other team going, they don't have it. They didn't practice like we did. We still got some in us. They don't get that. You don't just get to show up and be a rock star. Jesus, uh, he, he, he stretched himself. He went to the ends. When he he was done serving all day, he got up in the morning and he prayed. He fought the good fight from his knees, and then he got up and he served under submission to the Father. And so one of the things we need to look at here is that uh, in the sports analogy he uses, you can't just show up to the Olympics without preparing. You know that when you watch the Olympics, you're going to see, even if you don't even care about the competition, you're watching it going, this is going to be good because these guys are the world's best. And in order to compete, you have to be a citizen. In order to compete in the games, you had to be a citizen of the country you represent. So in order to compete in this game of faith, not that it's a game, we have to be citizens. We have to confess the good confession. And uh, if you want to know how to agonize, how to prepare, how to train, how to be ready for the battle, 
Ephesians chapter 6, verse 10 through 20 talks about putting on the armor. But Paul kind of summarizes this in 1 Corinthians in chapter 9. He uses uh, sports analogies apparently all the time. I don't know why more men aren't big fans of Scripture because you want to talk sports, Paul's all about it. 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 24. He says there, Do you not know that those who run in a race all run? Thanks, Paul. That's nice. But only one receives the prize. Run in such a way that you may obtain the prize. And everyone who competes for the prize, look at this, is temperate in all things. In other words, they change their life and their lifestyle and their eating habits and their preparation habits so that they can win the race. They, they do all that they can. They buffet their bodies. He says, um, everyone who competes for the prize is temperate in all things, and they do it to obtain a perishable crown. In those days, they wouldn't get a trophy that was made at the store downtown. They would get a laurel wreath. If you ever seen the secretariat, they take the, the big wreath and they put it over the horse, and it's made out of real flowers. But by the end of the day, that thing's dead. These people would spend their lives and their energy, and everybody, they would agonize to win this. And then within a day, it's dead. It would just be dead flowers. Some people keep those. I don't know. I don't know that men did. I don't, I don't know that they even cared about the flowers. They just wanted the, to be able to say, hey, I won. You know, bragging rights, if you will. But he says here, they do it to compete for a prize that is perishable. But look at this. We do it for an imperishable crown. The crown of glory that we will receive for remaining faithful, no matter what happened, is not perishable. It lasts for eternity. And the beauty of it is we get to heaven. Jesus really did it all. He saved us. He gave us faith to continue on. He gave us daily grace to, to do his will. He even gave us instructions along the way. And then we get to heaven. He rewards us. And he did it all. And you know the beauty that we get to do? We get to give it back to him and say, Lord, it was all you. We have something to give to the one who gave to us. I don't know about you, but I'm a Midwesterner. I like to be able to pay back. And though that crown that's imperishable will never pay him back, I'm still going to be pretty excited to be able to give it to him. I want it. I want it bad. How bad do you want it? You know, this isn't so we can brag against each other. This is just so we can brag on our king. If he's truly a king, we need to give him a crown. Each one of us can do that individually. How great is that? So, back in 1 Timothy, got a little excited there. <laughs> to which you also were called and have confessed the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. So the next slide there. He's confessed the good confession. What is the good confession? The good confession is that I need Jesus as my Savior. I'm confessing to him that I was a, a sinner that I, I was in need of grace, I couldn't save myself, and I need him. So then he goes on in verse 13, he says, I urge you in the sight of God who gives life to all things and before Christ Jesus who witnessed the good confession before Pontius Pilate that you keep this commandment without spot, blameless, until our Lord Jesus Christ appearing, which he will manifest in his own time. He who is blessed and the only potentate the King of kings and the Lord of lords, who alone has immortality, dwelling in unapproachable light, whom no man has seen or can see, 
to whom be honor and everlasting power. Amen. So he gets excited too, okay? This is the, like one of the longest sentences ever. But in there, he lists these truths. And he says something interesting. He says, I urge you in the sight of God. Our lives are lived before the sight of God at all times. He says, I urge you in the sight of God who gives life to all things. He says to them, to him in the sight of God, and God, Jesus, gives life to all things. I kind of wonder if Timothy was worried that if he truly did everything that God gave him to do, it might cost him his life. Think about Paul, who went and confessed the good confession before Ephesus in the book of Acts. What he said was, he started proclaiming Jesus. He proclaimed Jesus so well that they started getting rid of their idols. And there was a whole industry around building silver idols. And so the men that were in charge of that industry said, hey, this guy's a troublemaker. He's ruining, ruining our economy. So they took him into the, the, the big amphitheater. And I've stood in this amphitheater. And they actually started shouting, great is Diana of Ephesus. Because that was their God. He was claiming that she wasn't God at all but that the God that he followed and the person Jesus Christ was the only true God, the only one who could save. And they start shouting at him. They start a riot. And they just about put him to death. And his disciples said, hey, let's get out of here. I think we need to go. You're going to get killed. But Timothy's in the same city, and he's confessing the same confession. And I wonder if there was in this young pastor's thoughts of, I'm going to be crucified. They're going to kill me doing what I'm doing. And so what Paul says to Timothy to encourage him here is, uh, I urge you in the sight of God, by the way, who gives life to all things, that you, and, and before Christ Jesus, who witnessed the good confession before Pontius Pilate, you're in the same line. Jesus was tempted just as you are. Jesus made a good confession, right, to Pontius Pilate. Turn with me, if you can, to John chapter 18, and there you see the good confession. John chapter 18. Verse 28. It says, They led Jesus from Caiaphas to the praetorium. And it was early morning, but they themselves did not go into the praetorium, lest they should be defiled, but that they might eat the Passover. And Pilate then went out to them and said, What accusation do you bring against this man? They answered and said to him, If he were not an evildoer, why would we have brought him to you? So then Pilate said to them, You take him and judge him according to your law. And the Jews said to him, It's not lawful for us to put anyone to death. At the time, they had no right to exercise capital punishment under Roman rule. And so they, what they said there was true. We, there's a law that says we can't put anyone to death. And they, they saying of Jesus might be fulfilled which he spoke, signifying by what death he would die. So then Pilate entered the praetorium again and called Jesus and said to him, Are you in fact the king of the Jews? Jesus answered him and said, Are you speaking for yourself about this, or did others tell you this concerning me? Are you asking because you want to know, or are you asking because other people have told you this? Pilate answered and said, Am I a Jew? Your own nation and the chief priests have delivered you to me. 
Tell me, what, you, what have you done? Jesus answered and said, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would fight, so that I should not be delivered to the Jews. But now, as it is, my kingdom is not from here. And Pilate therefore said to him, Are you a king then? And Jesus answered and said, You, are right, you say rightly that I am a king. And it's for this reason that I was born, and for this cause I have come into the world, that I should bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth hears my voice. Pilate said to him, what is truth? What does that even mean? He's asking him a philosophical question. So what we know what happened is basically uh, to make the Jews happy, he had Jesus scourged. Now, this wasn't a whipping like you would get your kids with a belt, if any of you do that. This isn't a swatting. This isn't a caning. This is a no doubt cat of nine tails got lead pieces in the end of the flagellum. They would scrape, they would, they, it was pieces of glass and metal, and they would, they would take this, and it was like a bunch of strings with metal in them. They'd strike it over the, the victim's back, and they would pull it. And most of the time, they would do this in order to get a confession out of the person they were whipping. They had conf- done some crime. This would get them quickly to go, oh, oh, I did it. Anything but this. They would try to get a confession out of them. So they would whip them and pull. And what would happen is the skin would actually, there would be ravines in the skin and it would be ripped open. This is horrendous. But when they would do that, many times they would get a confession. Well, Jesus, Scripture says, said nothing. He didn't, he didn't try to defend himself. He just took it. That amazes me. If you want to see a man's man, here he is. So then he says, it goes on that later Pilate talks to him again. After he's been whipped and they're wanting him to be crucified, Pilate talks to him again. Now picture this. Jesus isn't just standing there having a conversation. He's got blood dripping from his back. His, many people in their accounts, Josephus says that you could even see his internal organs because he had been so marred. So then you see him in verse 5. It says, Jesus came out wearing a crown of thorns and a purple robe, and Pilate said to them, Behold the man. Therefore, when the chief priests and officers saw him, they cried out, saying, Crucify him, crucify him. And Pilate said to them, You take him and crucify him, for I have found no fault within him. He's been tested and approved. And what it says there is the Jews answered him, We have a law, and according to our law, he ought to die because he made himself the Son of God. He's blaspheming. Therefore, When Pilate heard that saying, he was more afraid, and he went again into the praetorium, and he has this conversation with Jesus. He says, where are you from? But Jesus didn't answer him. Then Pilate said to him, are you not going to talk to me? Do you not know that I have the power to crucify you and power to release you? And I want you to focus it on this verse. Jesus answered and said this, you could have no power at all against me unless it was given you from above. Therefore, the one who delivered me to you has the greater sin. So on that note, we go to the next few verses because he says, keep this commandment without spot. Keep this, hold fast to this confession that God is who he is. Hold fast to Jesus, uh, keeping this commandment without spot or blameless until our Lord Jesus Christ appearing. Look at this, verse 15, which he will manifest in his own time. 
He who is the blessed and only potentate. So I looked up that word for you, and I thought I had it here. There it is. Monarch or rule. He's claiming, Paul is to Timothy, he's the only ruler. Not that he's just king over the kings, but he's actually in charge of all kings. And if any king makes a ruling, the only way he can do it is if God allows him to do it. So this is supreme authority. So Jesus confesses this to Pilate, who's about to have him murdered, crucified, knowing full and well what it was going to cost him if he said this, but he kept his confession. He was true to the end. He didn't back away and say, well, you know, I'm, I'm the son of God, but you know, you don't, don't focus on that. And he didn't back away, but he stayed bold in the thing that mattered the most, knowing that it was going to cost him his life, knowing that it was the plan of God for him to get his life taken from him. The King of Kings, the Lord of Lords, who alone has immortality. Think about this. If you made this confession, if you and I had our lives risked, we would be tempted to think, that if these people kill me because of my profession of faith, it's over. But what the world didn't know, and what we have the advantage of knowing, is that it wasn't over. That Jesus made this confession, costing him his life, but his confession, I gave you two pictures there, on the upper left-hand corner, you have Jesus, who has been scourged, confessing or professing there to Pilate. And But what we don't see, we focus in on the fact that it killed him, But the reality is, he's really in the lower left-hand corner now. He sits down at the right hand of the Father. He's the only ruler now. He has gone from suffering to glory. And we, in the same manner, have the opportunity to do the same thing. That we hold fast our confession, no matter what happens, no matter what we think might happen, what we fear. We fear God alone and hold fast to the confession The reality is we might suffer, but it will lead to glory. We will be with him forever. And I think that's interesting because in Matthew chapter 7, verse 28 and 29, it says this. After Jesus did the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter chapter 5, 6, and 7, Uh, Matthew writes there, and so it was when Jesus had ended these sayings that the people were astonished at his teaching, for he taught them as one having authority and not as the scribes. Why did he teach as a man who had authority? Because he is the authority. He's it. He's the final say. Every one of us will come to judgment before him one day. And the beauty is, those of us who are in Christ, uh, he will look upon us, he will see Jesus and him fulfilling everything. And, and he'll say, enter into the joy of your Lord, good and faithful servant. And to those who have rejected his offer of mercy and salvation, they'll get the white throne judgment. And for all of them that have said their whole life, my good outweighs my bad, they'll find out whether it did or not. Because their only salvation will be their works. And if they're depending upon their works, God will receive them in that way. But when their works don't measure up, there is judgment. I, you know, I've heard so many people, well, I think that, you know, God's just and he's fair. And so when I get there, he'll see my heart and I'm like, yes, he will. He already does that. If there was any other way for men to be saved, Jesus prayed this prayer. He said, father, if there's any other way that, that, that you can be glorified and that, 
that men can be restored into right, right relationship with you, then, then please answer this prayer. But he says, not my will, but yours be done. And what did the Lord answer? No, you got to go to the cross. And he did it, despising the shame for the joy that was set before him. What was the joy that was set before Jesus? What was the prize that he was stretching out, literally being stretched out to take hold of? You and me. You and me. He agonized to win the prize, and the prize was you and I. How can we not so much more, as he gives us the grace to do so, agonize to lay hold of him, our betrothed, our husbandman, our savior, our Lord, it's amazing to me. I don't know what love is. Love believes all things, bears all things, hopes all things, endures all things. He did. He did. Love is just a word, but uh, agape love is Jesus, and he endured it all. So we're going to end uh, without finishing this morning, but I think that's a good spot to end. Father, Thank you for your great love. The Apostle Paul said that it was the love of Christ that compelled him to do everything that he did. So maybe some of us are struggling. I know I do. I get weary in the work. I get worn out. Uh, Satan uh, sends temptations and, and, uh, and I get overwhelmed and, and it causes all the the muck and the mire to come out of my mouth. and um, So, Father, I, I want to be one of those who holds fast to the good confession. I want to be a willing servant. I want to bring you glory by the way that I live my life. I want to stretch out and to lay hold of the things that really matter. But I can't do it apart from your empowering. None of us can. So, Father, um, help us to flee youthful lusts. Help us to flee the love of money. Help us to flee the temptation that's spoken of in 1 John chapter 2, the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, and the pride of life. Help us to flee that and help us to pursue righteousness and godliness. Help us to pursue you is really what he's supposed to pursue, to pursue love from a pure heart. And Father, as we do that, would you help us to have this vision of the prize. Not a vision of, you know, our ideal circumstances in life. I'm guilty of falling to that temptation. But help us to truly see that our prize is you, that we get to lay hold of a, a crown of glory, a crown of life that we have the opportunity to give to you and to truly crown you the King of Kings, that we will ar arrive where we're supposed to be and be able to give you the praise and the honor and the glory. In the meantime, until we see you face to face, we walk by faith and not by sight. So Lord, help us to lay hold and agonize for the things that matter while we're still here so that when we get there, we will not regret the fact that we didn't leave all of the energy that we had out on the course. Lord, help us to run this race, to obtain the prize and to finish and to make you proud, Lord. We love you. We thank you for your great love. We can only love you because you first loved us, and we're so grateful. In Jesus' name, amen.